It's a good week to be able to go sometime and just get away from everything and not do anything. Because people, what all you do, all you do, you do absolutely nothing. But you know what's so good about that? You're well relaxed and you just get away from it all. You know, no clocks and no getting up this time, nine o'clock, ten o'clock. That's the vacation I like to go and do nothing. Well, there's not an itinerary. We don't have to go do this and go do that because when me and my wife get together with her sister now and go camping, she's got an itinerary. Well, that's just like going to work because if I'm off, I don't want to be up at this time to eat breakfast and go here to this time. So I like just to do sometimes just what I want to do. And like she said, Joy, just relaxing, doing what you want to do and not being on any kind of schedule. That's a vacation to me. And just do what you kind of want to do and get some real relaxing rest. So we were glad to be gone for the week and glad to be back. But it's just so relaxing to be just to be able to do that. So we'll go with the sister. We have to get back on schedules. We, we kind of do away from that sometimes. Anyway, I like this next one. After I bow. When the gates of my faith are far behind And the land of my dreams shall be mine With the world below, then I'll know all the beauties, words have never told, heaven will be awaiting for me after I see his majesty. I will walk the streets of gold. I will talk with saints of old. I will rise with angels to see. After I bow to the King. Making my way to the throne There I'll stand in the presence of God alone And there'll be splendor and royalty Surrounding His majesty, O oh, worthy, I'll sing. Abending my knees, I'll sing and praise to the King of kings. I will walk the streets of gold. 
I will talk with saints of old. I will rise with angels to sing. After I bow to the King, I will rise with angels to sing. After I bow to the King. After I bow to the King. Amen. Our, our cooking reputation uh, precedes us. I told someone um, about the luncheon over here, and I and I said, and that's one thing we do really well. We we do food really well, and they said, "Oh, I've heard." So, so even our our reputation goes before us there. There's moments that define who we are. Uh, I have to tell you, uh, I didn't mention this earlier, but um, one of those moments happened this week. We have a published author in our midst. Um, of course, it was in a newspaper, but hey, that's still published, right? Uh, Larry wrote a piece, a little piece, uh, sent it into the Alabama Baptist, and he got published. He, his God story got published. So if you've got this week's Alabama Baptist, take a look at that. If not, I think you can, you might be able to look it up online and see it. But, um, but his, his little snippet is in there, uh, his testimony. So that, that should encourage you. So, so well done, Larry. You've done something that I haven't even been able to do yet. Get in print. So, um, but there are moments that define us, that, that really define who we are. I think of the war veteran that, that has a Purple Heart, a Congressional Medal of Honor, who, who sacrificed himself against insurmountable odds in the face of certain death to save not only himself, but others. I think of, I think of people who, who go in behind enemy lines to rescue the POW. I think of, um, I think of, of a, of a mother when she first holds that baby. Kind of changes the rest of her life. Now you've been holding the, holding the baby for a while. And when that baby's born and you're holding them in your arms and not just in your tummy, it's a life defining moment. I bet this moment was a life-defining moment. In some ways, for Jesus. You may or may not know this. I think I've said it before. But the word Messiah, the, the Greek word Christ, both of them mean anointed one. Anointed one. And so when we call Jesus Christ, we're calling him a title. We're saying this is Jesus, the anointed one. This is Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the Christ. And so this moment was kind of a life-defining moment, if you will. This is where Jesus gets his title of anointed one, 
literally. But it's also a life-defining moment for another person. Someone who does the anointing. We come across those moments where we're never the same afterwards. Some people might say that the time the dresser fell on my head when I was a toddler was a moment that would make me never the same again. And you might be able to see some evidence of that from time to time. Um, but there's life moments where everything changes. And from that moment on, it's not going to be the same. This, I think, is one of those moments in the Scripture. Look with me in Mark chapter 14. We'll read verses 3 through 9. And as we read, stand with me. This is God's Word. And it's, and it's important enough that we ought to change posture. Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. This is God's Word, and if you let it, it will change your life. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flax of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? Ointment wasted like that? Uh, for this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could, and she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Let's pray. Father, we have your word before us. Lord, I pray that this would be a life-changing moment for us today. That we will not be the same after hearing your word. After exposing your word. Bringing it to light so that we can see all that you have for us. God, I pray that we will not be the same. Lord, we give you free reign. Use your word to change us. Bring you glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a seat. So, it's a life-changing moment. I, 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 I have to, um, I have to say, first of all, this is a, one of the good things about having four gospels. You think, well, why do you need four different people telling you the same stuff? Well, this is why. This is one of those stories that's repeated in a couple of Gospels. And each of them give us a little bit different detail that, than, than some of the other ones give us. And so we can get not only a little bit clearer picture of what happened, but a little bit clearer in our minds. Like we can, we can get into the room and see how things go. So I want to take you back to a couple of days before the Passover. We've been talking about Jesus' final week. He's ridden on the donkey. In this triumphal entry with crowds behind them shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We've seen him enter into the temple precincts. It's late. He goes back to Bethany for the night. Staying with friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. I'm pretty sure if Jesus raises you from the dead, you're kind of obligated to give him a place to stay when he needs it. <laughs> it's kind of 
So they keep him up, and I'm sure it's no trouble for them at all. But they keep him up for the night. The next day he comes back in and he cleans the temple out. He's wipe throwing over tables and he's kicking people out and he's preventing folks from coming through and selling stuff and saying, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nation, but you're making it into a den of robbers. And boy, we, re- we really like to see Jesus like that, right? You know, taking charge and show him who's boss. We hear him talk to the authorities, the authorities, the religious leaders who wonder by whose authority are you doing these things? And he's the one that's really in charge. We hear him tell stories of terrible tenants who do not give their master what he is owed in their destruction. We've seen Jesus teach at length about the destruction of the temple. And he reminds us that while we might have an idea of what's going to happen, we don't really know how it's going to go down. No one really knows the hour. You better be ready. Then we come back to Bethany. It's a couple of days before Christ would be crucified. Time's really getting short now. Time When it gets short, you don't want to waste it. Jesus is eating a meal. Verse 3 tells us, And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, we don't know anything about Simon the leper, except that he had a house and Jesus ate a feast there. We can surmise that he is not full-blown with leprosy. If he was, he would have been out of the community. Perhaps he was healed by Christ at some point, but still had the name, the leper, because, well, that's how you know who he is. Isn't it funny how sometimes things that aren't even true anymore still define us? Anyway, so Simon the leper is hosting this feast. Verse 3 goes on to say, As he, Jesus, was reclining at the table, a woman with an alabaster flax of ointment of pure nard, very costly. She brings this ointment in this beautiful box. Alabaster is a type of of, of basically marble stone. And um, they use it to keep essential oils and, and valuable perfumes and spices and things. So she has this thing, box, flask, We're not quite sure exactly what it is. The word can kind of mean both. But she takes it and she breaks it and pours out all of this very expensive ointment on the head of Christ. I want you to picture it. The way they would eat, they would lie down. And I'm going to... I wish I could do this on stage where y'all could see me. So you're going to have to picture me laying down. They lay down with their feet behind them propped up on a shoulder, resting their head at the table, and would eat. So uh, think about how you might eat. Excuse me. Think about how you might eat um, when you're a kid watching a movie and you're laying down on a little blanket in, in the living room watching, watching a movie on the TV with mom and dad, maybe eating some popcorn 
that kind of reclining. And there's got to be several of them there. We know the disciples are there. We also know from John's perspective, from John's story in John chapter 12, that Mary and Martha and Lazarus are there. And guess what Lazarus is doing? Lazarus is eating with them. Guess what Martha's doing? I'll give you a guess. Just, just guess what Martha's doing. She's serving them, right? Because that's what Martha does. Then John tells us that Mary, Mary is this woman who brings this ointment. Mary, this woman who we know, loved Jesus expresses her love in a very expensive way. We know that she cares about him. Mark tells us in, a, look down in verse 5. Mark tells us in verse 5, the ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. A denarii is, is a, a, a day's labor. Daryl did some math on this. You figure minimum wage, 300 days labor, eight-hour days, you're talking about $20,000 of ointment. That, that, I, anybody got 20000 to throw on some, some oil? Yeah, that's a lot of money. I, I did a little bit different math. I took the median income. I didn't take the minimum wage. I took kind of the average income for the state of Alabama. Uh, if if my math is correct, it would be more like forty thousand dollars of ointment. But even twenty is still huge. This is almost a year's worth of wages. This isn't something you come across overnight. This isn't something that you you do flippantly. Well, how many of you? Maybe you're like this. If you're not, then you're just a terrible example. But how many of you, just at random, say, you know what, I'm going to go buy a new car and go buy a new car. That's what this is like doing. Except you say, you know what, I don't really want this car. I'll give it to someone else. Not your kid, because they need something to drive. No, no, no. This is like... Um. This is outrageous kind of generosity, folks. I mean, there's just no other way to describe it. She is outrageously generous in doing what she's doing. She's spending a ton of money. She gets this alabaster flat. Now, that's not even, that's the cost of the ointment in there. The, the flask, the box that she's holding it in. That box would have cost a lot of money, too. And so this is a considerable investment to make for this one act. Then she breaks it, which not only, not now breaking it is not opening the top and pouring it out. No, this is like breaking it like it can't be used anymore. And she pours it out. One commentator said it was to show that not only does she anoint his head, she gets every drop out of it to anoint him. Do, do, you, do you see what's happening here? There's some messianic overtones. I've already told you the word Messiah, the word Christ, both mean anointed one. 
And this is where he becomes the anointed one, literally. We talk about anointing, we talk about two ways. We talk about um, the Holy Spirit anointing. God coming upon someone, resting upon someone, and, and giving them the strength to carry out his mission. But we also talk about anointing. It's a very practical thing. Kings would be anointed. Priests would be anointed. And here, the king priest, the sovereign Lord of all the universe, is being anointed. Now, one thing that strikes me about all this is that she is going through a great deal of trouble to do this. Who knows how how much how long she had to save up? How long she's had to work to get the amount necessary to buy this? She's going out of her way to anoint Christ, and some some would even wonder. Is she even, does she even know what she's doing? Does she even know that she's anointing him for burial? I happen to believe two things. I, I believe, number one, God's Spirit is leading her to do this. But I also believe, and I believe this sincerely, that whether or not she knows whether she's preparing Christ for burial, she knows he's worth this much. Think about Mary. We don't know a ton about her. But what we do know is she sure loved Jesus. And when you love someone, they're worth the sacrifice. Right? When you love someone, they're worth the effort. They're worth the money. They're worth the time. You don't have to ask. Last night, Carrie got... Carrie's feeling sick. If she needs something and she's sick, I don't give her a hard time about it. I I, I don't give her a hard time. Why? Because I love her, right? And she's worth the effort. If the effort is running to get a trash can real fast, that's the effort. If the effort is rubbing her shoulder until my hands get carpal tunnel and I can't do anything anymore, she's worth the effort. If it's if it's spending thousands of dollars to do something for her, she's worth it. She is worth it to me. And so I'm willing to do whatever it takes for her, right? Y'all know this. Husbands, right? Your wives are worth it, right? They're worth the effort. They're worth the cost. Now, some of y'all are like, well... Maybe hundreds instead of thousands. I get that. I'm cheap too. Can we can we get it on sale? <laughs> eh? Maybe maybe order the Nard from Amazon and get it a little cheaper. Get some find some coupons online or something. But I want you to contrast the greatness of her sacrifice, just how how massive of a sacrifice this is. I want you to contrast that 
to the two stories that bookend this one. Remember, biblical authors, when they put things together, they're not just telling us what happens just to tell us what happens. They're telling us a story. And good storytelling goes somewhere. The way you put things together brings out truths that, that maybe you miss in the midst of the story. This is why you read your Bible in context. Because we all know that where you put things in a story matters. So, so let's look at where he put them. Right before this happens, 14 verses 1 and 2. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Here, the chief priests and scribes are becoming more and more desperate to kill Jesus. But, but do you notice, do you notice what they don't want to do? They don't want to get folks mad. Now, I kind of understand that, okay? When you are in power that's been granted to you by higher power, you don't want to get the higher power upset, okay? So walk with me here for a second. If you are appointed by your boss to do something, you don't want to fail at that or your boss will get mad you'll suffer consequences. Those consequences might be not getting that promotion. Those consequences might be getting chewed out. Those consequences might include having to find a new boss because that one let you go, right? There's a consequence to making those who are over you mad at you, right? You don't bite the hand that feeds you, I think is kind of one way of saying that. They are afraid of a riot. Now, they're not afraid of the people so much as of the Romans. Because if there's one thing Romans can't stand, it's a riot. If there's one thing that you will not get away with in the Roman world, it is a revolt. You can name, you just name people who revolt against Rome and watch what happened to them time after time after time after time after time. They were put down. And they weren't put down by nice gestures. They weren't put down by diplomacy. There was no, there were no diplomatic talks. It was force. And boy, did the Romans know how to use violent force. I mean, look at the cross. That was, that was their idea. Not only will we kill you in the most painful way, we will do it in public so everybody sees what happens when you oppose us. So if there's one thing these guys don't want, it's to lose their power, to be on the wrong side of the Romans. And a riot is a sure way for that to happen. So what do they do? They try to find the easiest, most convenient way to kill Christ without there being a big stink about it. We want to do what we want to do, but we want to do it in such a way that nobody really opposes us. We're going to connive and cheat our way to get what we want with as little effort and trouble as possible. But then there's another story on the back end of this. Right after this, we read in verse 10, Then Judas Iscariot, 
one of, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. I, I, I find that kind of interesting. <laughs> Isn't it kind of interesting that, that, that Judas, Mark tells us, or uh, John tells us that he kept the purse strings. In fact, John, uh, we'll see it in just a little bit, Judas has a role to play in the story we're looking at. Not just afterwards, but during. We'll see that in a second. But when they... He comes to them and he says, so let, let's talk business. And when they heard it, they were glad. Finally, here's our way. We finally found out how we're going to do it. So they promise him money, right? And he sought an opportunity to betray him. You see it? Judas goes to the chief priest looking to betray Jesus. But how? Verse 11. Uh, some of your versions read this a little bit differently. Daryl, do you have that verse? Bible? I think the way yours reads. Re read verse 11. There it is. You hear the word? Conveniently. Let me go through as little trouble as possible. Isn't that interesting? Here is a woman who is going through as much trouble as she can dream up to show her love for Christ. And then there's other people that want to do as little as possible, as easy as possible to get rid of him. He's not even worth the effort to betray. But to her, he's worth the effort. That speaks volumes to me. I, I, I have to ask, is, is he worth the effort to me? Is he worth the effort to you? Is he worth going through the trouble? What kind of trouble that, that might vary depending on who you are? Uh, for some people, that trouble involves physical trouble, persecution. For some people, that involves emotional trouble. It might involve uh, losing their family, friends, being ostracized by their community. There's parts of the world where you say, I follow Christ, you don't have a place to live anymore. His mom and dad say, get out. You're not welcome here. There, there's other kinds of trouble too. I got told one time in high school, he said, you, you, you like Jesus? I said, yes. He said, you suck. Said, well, if that's the worst persecution I see, I think I'm going to be all right. <laughs> that's, like, that's terrible. Like, like that's, a, that's, a, that's a terrible attempt, man. <laughs> Go back to the drawing board. <laughs> Try again later. Both the leaders and the betrayer want to give up nothing. Gain. All while delivering the Lamb of God to the slaughter. But this woman is going through every expense just, just to anoint Christ. That's love. There's 
there's also two reactions to the woman's gift. Look in verses 4 and 5. We already read verse 5, but, but go back to verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, because that always happens. When you do something that, that's worthwhile, an expression of love, when you do something that's worth doing, somebody's going to criticize you for it. Right? There's always going to happen. Maybe it's just because she was making them look bad. I don't know. But they always find some kind of way to criticize. So they said indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Do you see their reactions? Verse 4. Wasted. They reacted with indignation. Verse 5. This could have been sold. Given to the poor. They denunciate it. Look at the end of verse 5. They scolded her. The, Lord, the, the word literally means snorted at her. Yeah. They wagged the finger in her face. Picture Mary. How would you feel if that were you? You ever felt like you were as little as an ant? Little teeny tiny thing crushed under people's feet. You ever felt that way? I imagine that's how Mary feels. Her expression of love and devotion for the Savior and she's getting trampled on. Why didn't you sell that? You know, you know how much money that is? $20,000. That could feed more than 20 people for an entire year. Food pantries estimate their costs around 65 cents a pound. By his figure of about $20,000, you could feed more than 20 people three meals a day for an entire year with that kind of money. That is no chump change. Don't you know what you're doing? You're wasting this. Look at all the good you could have done. Now, John gives us the perspective. Guess who's saying this? Judas. Isn't that funny? Judas. <laughs> Judas, Judas. Matthew tells us it's the disciples murmuring to themselves. Mark tells us somebody murmuring. John tells us Judas says it out loud. You know what I think is going on here? I don't think it's about poor. Well, John tells us. John chapter 12, verse 6. Listen to what he says. He said this, Judas said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in. You know what he literally does? He says, you should have given that money to the poor so that I could skim off the top of it. Oh, wow. 
You see, this isn't a real indignation. This is a fake indignation. You don't really care about the poor. Jesus assesses this quite differently. Look in verse 6. Jesus said, leave her alone. This same word in a little bit different context would mean forgive. But here it just means leave. Don't bother. Why are you troubling her? Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The word beautiful is a word for good. It has this this air of beauty. It's so good that it's beautiful. He says that what she done, instead of a self-serving false indignation, Christ finds a selfless, genuine delight in her actions. He says, God, this is really beautiful. It's like when 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 the toddler makes you a drawing on their bedroom wall and you don't you don't find it beautiful. But it is. Or at least if you have to clean it, you don't find it beautiful. We know we know his indignation is false because he's, he's a thief. Look at what Jesus says in verse seven. This is a I love how Jesus puts this. He says, "For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them." There's a under there's there's something between the lines here. Do you hear it? Not that you do anything for the poor, but if you wanted to, you could. Anytime. But you're not always going to have it. You don't always have the opportunity to show Christ the affection and love He deserves. And I want you to hear that because we often think, well, we can just, we can love Jesus anytime. Some people will tell you, well, you know, I'll do whatever I want to do and then later on in life, I'll just come back. They, they won't say it in those words. They'll say, I'm too busy right now too busy right now. But I'm going to tell you something. There is a limited time offer of salvation. It doesn't carry on forever. You don't always have the opportunity to follow Christ. Always have the opportunity to love Him. Always have the opportunity to serve Him. If you don't act on it when you are called to, when you have the opportunity to, you may lose that chance. And even for Christians, we may lose the opportunity to follow His will because we just don't want to. We're too comfortable where we are. Or we just say, well, maybe later. When things get a little bit better. When I have a little bit more money. When, when there's not so much to do on the calendar. If you're too busy for Jesus. You're too busy, folks. Boy, I'm learning that one the hard way. Because I'm, well, a dresser fell on my head when I was three. So there. <laughs> I have to learn things the hard way sometimes. You don't always have the chance. You always have the chance to do good stuff. You don't always have the chance to do stuff for me. John gives us 
the clarity. He doesn't. He doesn't care about the clarity. He's simple. He's using it as an excuse. And Jesus called him out. You can do. You can do for poor whatever. See, he also praises her when others denounce her. Look, look in, look in verse eight. She has done what she could. Another way of saying that is, what she could do, she has done. Does that remind you of anyone? Maybe a woman with a couple of of small coins, given everything she had. That's what she could do. She's doing what she needs. Mary has a way of knowing what's most important. That's why she's the one sitting with Jesus while Martha is cleaning the house. Because she knows what's most important. She's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Now Jesus gets to it. He says, what she's doing is preparing me for what God has in store for me. Have, have, have any of you ever been in that boat where you do something according to the leading of the Spirit and it ends up preparing someone else? I bet you have. I bet God has used you in ways maybe you didn't even know. I know He's used you all in ways you didn't even know. Because He's used you in my life. Other people denounce her, but he praises her. He compliments her when others condemn her. Look in verse 9. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. What's so powerful to me about this is that Jesus finds the value, not just in the price of the offering, but in the love behind it. Some of you need to hear this this morning. When you give for Him, you are not just giving stuff that has value. When you put money in the offering plate, you're not just putting money in the offering plate. If you're doing it the right way, and we'll take it either way, but if you're doing it the right way, you're putting in a lot more than just dollar bills or checks. Because what you're doing is you're giving to God yourself. And it's not just the physical things. It's the. It's more than that. God sees that. And the reason God loves a cheerful giver is because he gets to cheerfully give. He gets to do something in your heart that he could not have done otherwise. If you give begrudgingly, I'm going to tell you this, and this is going to sound crazy coming from a Baptist preacher, don't even bother giving. Don't even bother with it. If this, if this is an obligation to you and that's all it is, 
Just stop. Get your heart in the right place. Because there's more to the offering than just the money in the plate. God uses it to change our hearts. And what He has done in Mary's life has been so incredible that it overflows. And it doesn't matter how expensive or how cheap the offering is. What matters is that she loves Him so much that she is willing to give it. And I'm going to ask you to do the same. I don't want your oil. It's not what I'm asking for. I'm asking you to do what you can do. I'm asking you to give everything to God. Let Him have control. And to love Him with everything you are. And if you'll do that, your legacy will long be longer. Uh, within a couple of days, Jesus would be dead. Not for long. The ointment would end up getting washed away. The box would have been thrown in the trash, broken apart, over time, worn out, thrown away. The legacy lives on. When you love God the way that Mary did, Your legacy lives on. This morning, won't you, won't you leave a legacy? Won't you do what he's calling you to do? I'm going to be up here at the front. If I can pray with you, if I can help you in any way, you come and talk to me. I will sing this hymn. For some of you, that means giving your heart to Christ in the first place. I'd love to help you do that. For some, that's you've already done that, but it's time to it's time to get serious. It's time to plug into a church family. It's time to be involved. It's time to be active doing ministry. I'd love to help you get on that road. You come see me while we sing.